Well, good evening. Welcome back. We are pretty close to wrapping up our series on the life of Christ. We are tonight going to be looking at the passages of Scripture that address Christ's entrance into Jerusalem as he rides a young colt. And of course, shortly after, we'll see the days that, uh, that, that take place between his arrival in Jerusalem and his crucifixion. And then once we get to the cru crucifixion, it's going to fly. We're going to be through this series pretty fast. I'll need to start considering what series I will teach next. I've been teaching the life of Christ for so long, I haven't had time to really think. Or I, I had time. I haven't taken the time to think about what uh, would be the next series. But I'll let you know once I come up with that. We're in John chapter 11, just at the very end of John 11. I wanted to look at verse 55. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They then sought they Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? The... Jews, the religious leaders, as well as the common Jews, are now asking, is Christ going to arrive at this annual feast, this major event? Uh, we expect that he would, but we also know he's, he's not very popular with the religious leaders. They are seeking to kill him. And is Christ going to be bold enough to show up when people are looking to kill him? Verse 57, now both the chief priests and Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. So this was a publicized statement. This was not a secret um, plot any longer. The Pharisees, the chief priests, are now making it very obvious to those in the synagogues, to those in the city, whether there was wanted posters up on the wall, I don't know. But people were definitely aware that the Pharisees, the chief priests, wanted Christ arrested, and they could probably guess where that would end up once he was arrested. Verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. You know, this scenario with Lazarus, uh, we're told that the, the chief priests, the Pharisees, were not overly excited about what had happened with Lazarus. Go ahead and look at verse 9. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. Lazarus was a obvious living testament of the power of Christ. Now, Lazarus is not the only one that he did raise from the dead. Remember, the widow's son was raised from the dead. We also know the story of the, uh, the young girl who Christ said, oh, she's sleeping, and people said, oh, you jest, she's not sleeping, she's dead. And then Christ raised her from the dead as well. So there's at least two others that Christ has risen from the dead. Lazarus seems to be a lot more of a problem to the chief priests and Pharisees, maybe because of Lazarus's popularity. Maybe he was more well-known. This young girl who was raised from the dead was a nobody. Uh, the widow's son was a nobody, but Lazarus was a somebody. And for that reason, a somebody like Lazarus being well-known and well-known to have died three days later, risen, well, that's something to cause a problem for the Pharisees and the chief priests. So we're told in verse 10, the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. These guys 
are so beyond even their own moral code. I can tell you, the Pharisees and the chief priests would have been staunch followers of the Old Testament law. They had their issues. Their issues were to manipulate people and insert where they desired, where it made them look good, certain traditions. But they still would have been staunch followers of the Old Testament law. Thou shalt not kill would have been a major tenet of their character, personality, morality. And yet here they are now plotting to do the very thing that they would have despised and called others out for. Why? They hated Christ so much. I think that uh, there's not many things that can bring you to a place of doing things you never thought possible more than hatred. Envy might be right up there with it. Envy and hatred can bring you to a point of no return. Envy and hatred left unchecked will result in you doing things you never thought you could do, never thought you would do. And here the chief priests and Pharisees, the Sadducees, are considering murder. Now, maybe they're justifying it as unnatural that Lazarus would be dead and raised again. And maybe in the conversations, I could see how this would go. Well, Lazarus, by God's will, died anyways. It's our duty to fulfill the will of God and make sure he stays dead this time. We're just doing the work of God. Jesus, doing the work of Satan, brought him back from the dead when obviously God wanted him dead. Can you see how that conversation would go? But either way, Lazarus is alive. And taking his life is murder. But I guarantee you that's not how they would have explained it to each other. Verse 4. One, saith one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's sons, which should betray him, why was this not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? So now we have the story of a uh, woman, Mary, who takes a pound of ointment, spikenard, very costly, and anoints his feet with it. Now, who is this Mary? This is Mary, the sister of Martha. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. There are multiple Marys in the Bible. There is Mary, the mother of Jesus. There is uh, another Mary who it seems came from a um, dark lifestyle, and Christ seems to have saved her out of that. We find, and another Mary, there's even other Marys who are just mentioned as another Mary. So we don't know all the backgrounds of this Mary, but it's obvious from this context that when he's at Martha's house and Mary is mentioned in this context, it seemed very obvious to me this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. What is Mary doing? She is worshiping Christ. Worshiping Christ in a way that is not only costly financially, but it costs her her pride. She is humbling herself in a manner that would seem very out of place. Definitely out of place for a woman like Martha, who had been, I think, much more stoic, much more um, in tune with what is proper. Martha would have been more concerned about whatever we do, let's make sure it looks good. Mary doesn't care. Mary loves Jesus. Mary is worshiping Jesus. The apostles have been told over and over again, that Jesus is going to die. The apostles refuse to believe or choose to not understand, choose to be confused. And yet Mary, she chooses to hear and understand. And what does she do? Doesn't just worship Christ, but worships him in a manner that honors the decision he has made. When Judas Iscariot is feigning concern 
feigning shock that this much money would be spent on Christ. Christ's response in verse 7 is, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. Christ is commending Mary for her decision of humble worship. He's also making it very clear that Mary accepts my decision to die. When Peter rebukes Christ and says, no, you can't get saved, or you, I'm sorry, you can't die on the cross, and, and Christ says, get thee behind me, Satan. When the apostles seem shocked as Christ dies on the cross, it seems to me that one follower of Christ knew what was coming because one follower of Christ heard what Christ said, and it was Mary. He says in verse 8, the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Judas Iscariot claims to be upset because all that money could have been given to the poor, except Christ clarifies through the inspiration of Scripture using John the Apostle that Judas wasn't going to use the money for the poor. He was going to embezzle it. Judas had been some time keeping the purse strings and embezzling funds, and Judas was upset that this much money would slip through his fingers. Unfortunately, the idea that a leader would misuse funds is nothing new. That a spiritual leader, someone in a religious realm, someone who claims to be a follower of God, that they would misuse, mishandle, or outright steal funds is nothing new. That's been going on literally for thousands of years. And yet I talk to people and they tell me, well, you know, when I tithe, when I give, it's no longer my responsibility of what happens to that money. My responsibility is to give it and the rest is up to God. Well, can you show me in Scripture a verse that agrees with that statement? You can't because it's not there. I personally believe that we are responsible not only for what we give, but responsible to who we give it to. And if you're giving the money to someone you know will mishandle it, then you yourself have been a poor steward of that money by throwing it at someone who will embezzle, mishandle, or abuse the finances. I think that maybe not just as bad, but still a problem, is giving finances to a church who claims to do the work of God but not willing to, in transparency, prove it. There are plenty of ministries, not just churches, plenty of nonprofits that claim they're doing the work of the Lord. But they're not going to prove that claim by letting you see how the money is spent. And you know what's interesting? The nonprofits, non religious nonprofits that do have to by law because of their board of representatives or board of trustees, whatever, that have, have uh, required this, those who do give the profit and loss, those who do show how the money is spent, Many of these nonprofits, you will find, that claim they help the needy, they help the destitute. There is a significant percentage of that money going into the pockets of administrative costs, which is basically payroll. Very little of it is going to where they claim it will land. When I was young and naive, this was not that long ago, back in Virginia, I was in my 20s. And I've always cared about law enforcement and first responders. I've always appreciated the work that they did. And there was a phone call that I received on my cell phone 
And they said, hello, we are collecting funds for the local, I want to say it was first responders. It might have been law enforcement. It was one or the other, fire department, first responders, or law enforcement. We're collecting funds. Would you like to donate to your local whatever, whatever one it was? And I said, sure. And I gave them a credit card over the phone, I believe. I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was a credit card. And uh, I think I gave, like, let's say, probably 50 bucks. It wasn't a whole lot, but in my mid-20s, as a youth pastor, not making much, it was a lot to me. Gave $50. Well, you can imagine after that, I got a whole lot more calls from not just this group, but from other groups. I guess my name got on the list, and they started calling me more often. Once I started receiving more calls, I realized I can't give $50 to everyone that calls. So it forced me to do some research to determine, all right, so which ones will I give it to? And it did not take long, it did not take much research for me to do by looking online and seeing what others have stated, as well as these companies themselves. Come to find out, I wasn't talking to someone who actually was from the fire department or law enforcement. It was a, uh, a nonprofit group, company, whatever, um, of callers who were collecting the money and then giving it. But it was something like uh, 10 cents for every dollar. It was some ridiculous amount. 10 cents went to the law enforcement, 90, 90 cents was kept to cover the cost of the people making the phone calls, to cover the cost of their supervisors, to cover the cost of the building that they're in, to cover the cost of everything else. So of the $50 that I gave, I think that they got maybe like, I don't know, a, a few dollars. It was some crazy small amount. The next time they called, I asked the question, how much of this is going towards the law enforcement? And I think their answer was, well, we actually don't, I can't really tell you or I don't know. And I said, no, thank you. And I hung up. Had to say that over and over again until they took me off the list. But I was of the opinion that if my money is going to go somewhere, I want to make sure I know where it's going. And it shocks me how many Christians don't seem to have that same philosophy. Now, I was naive. I was naive in trusting that the money would go. But once I discovered it, I was not so naive to keep giving it. And I would love to tell you that every church and every money, every ministry was using the money as they claimed to do so. But you need to stop being naive. You need to make sure that the money you are giving towards God's kingdom is going to God's kingdom as you intend it to. And do not claim that your job ends when you give it. That isn't in Scripture. Judas was the keeper of the bag, and Judas was embezzling. And therefore, Judas wanted to make sure all money came through him and feigned anger when Mary used it for something as meaningless as worship. And yet Christ doesn't only rebuke Judas, he commends Mary. What does that say? I think that one lesson learned here is I don't know that you can spend too much money on worshiping God. This was a lot of money spent for a one-time worship experience. Not saying that you should break the bank for an amazing Sunday morning event, but I am saying that when God's glory is lifted up, I don't know that we should look to be stingy at that opportunity. That what can we spend so that people can see God's glory better? Personally, I'm willing to spend it. Within reason, again, not waste the money, not throw it away. But if it can enhance the clarity of people to see God, 
if it can enhance the opportunity for people to see God, if it can, if it can eliminate the distractions that cause people to not see God, I think, in my opinion, it's money well spent. Having said that, we have spent a lot of money on the sound system. We spent a lot of money on our cameras. And unfortunately, it seems like we will have to spend more money on some of these items as things are starting to wear out and not work properly. But doing so for the sake of those in the room and those online to worship Christ in a way that lets them see him clearly, I don't know that there's a better way to spend money. Jesus Christ commends Mary for the use of her money as well as for the recognition and the, the um, being willing to hear what Christ states about what is next, and that is his death. All right, let's now take a look at Christ's triumphal, triumphant entry in verse 12. We're in John 12, looking at verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees. All right, earlier we saw that uh, in chapter 11, what did the chief priests command the people to say and do when they saw Christ? To let him know. And I think that the chief priests and Pharisees assumed Christ would sneak into Jerusalem and that their spies would discover him when he snuck in like a thief. And so Christ, what does he do? The exact opposite. On many occasions, Jesus Christ has walked into multiple towns, including Jerusalem, without any fanfare. Christ literally creates the fanfare this time. Why? Well, it's his triumphant entry. It's the, it's the recognition that he is the king of kings. Yes, I get that. I'm not denying that that is possibly partly what's going on here. But personally, when I see John chapter 11, the chief priests are basically claiming Christ is a sneak and a coward. And that if you find him sneaking around Jerusalem, let us know. And then we see Christ making a fanfare of entry when he never does that before. I think there has to be some kind of connection. I think Christ is showing not only the chief priests and Pharisees, but also the people who have essentially been hearing the spreading of lies, his name being degraded, thrown in the dirt. Christ is showing them, no, I'm not the sneak that the Pharisees think I am. I'm not the coward that the chief priests think that I am. So could there be a double purpose? Could it be that Christ is obviously marching in as was foretold, accomplishing that prophecy? Most definitely. But could he also be contradicting the lies being told about him by the chief priests and Pharisees? I think so. So the triumphant entry takes place. People gather together. Branches of palms are thrown on the ground. Hosanna is cried. Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, colt, donkey, sat thereon as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Sion, or Zion. The king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. Not just a donkey, but a young donkey. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave, raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for they that heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. The Pharisees are a little disheartened at this point. This is what seems to them to be a road of no return. That's it. 
Christ's popularity is too much, there's no way we can bring him down now. The Pharisees must have been in extreme discouragement and depression at this moment on this day. It is interesting how quickly things can change. Obviously, Christ had a plan all along, but the Pharisees living in discouragement and depression, thinking that their plan will never come to fruition only a few days later to see Christ on the cross. Now, I'm not advocating for the Pharisees. I'm just stating how quickly things change in this world. Those who are on top are quickly on the bottom. Those who are on the bottom quickly rise to the top. The Pharisees at this point are on the bottom. A few days later, they'll be riding high as Jesus Christ, their sworn enemy, is on the cross. And then Christ's resurrection will throw them right back down to the bottom again. Your life will be a series of rises and falls. My suggestion to you is ask yourself, on the rise, are you rising with Christ or against Christ? And on the falls, are you falling for Christ or are you falling because Christ is rising? We are going to rise and fall. I challenge and encourage you to make sure your rises and falls match the will of God in your life. Unfortunately for the Pharisees, their fall is at Jesus' peak. Their rise is at the death of Christ. And then when Jesus raises from the dead, peaks again, they fall again. Don't let your rises and falls the opposite of the glory of God. Now, let's see a little different account of the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem. Um, let's take a look at Luke chapter 19. This is one account that is discovered in all of the Gospels. There are plenty of stories of the life of Christ that are only told in one Gospel, two, or three there's only a few that you find all four gospel accounts giving details on. And it would make sense that the entry of Christ in Jerusalem, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ would be mentioned in all the gospels. All right, so Luke chapter 19, verse 28. When he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. It came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entrance ye shall find a colt tied. He says, bring him here. In verse 31, he says, if someone asks, what are you doing with this colt? Tell him the Lord hath need of him. Now, why wouldn't Christ just go get the donkey himself? Well, Christ is tired. Christ doesn't want to walk in. No, I think it's something else. I think it's kind of anticlimactic for Christ to walk in, get the donkey, walk out, and then ride it back in. Christ is literally, again, setting himself up for fanfare. Christ is planning ahead, and Christ is making the choices for the greatest impact possible when he arrives. Sometimes it is a glorious thing to see things happen that you didn't plan for. Sometimes you, are, you, you could be shocked when a worship service results in an amazing experience where People are coming to the Lord and getting right with God. Sometimes you can be shocked when you're doing the same thing you do every day, but something amazing happens that you did not expect. Those are great moments. But let me tell you this. It's not wrong to plan for great moments. It's not wrong to create an environment that is conducive to great moments. We see Christ doing that right here. Obviously, Christ is God. Christ knows what great moments will come, whether it's planned or not. 
but we obviously see Christ planning. And we see Christ not doing things that would hinder this great moment, making it not so climactic. And so as Christians, following the example of Christ, if you are looking for an opportunity to glorify God in an amazing way, maybe there should be some planning involved. Can there be times where it just happens? Sure. And those are beautiful moments. But we can't expect that to always happen. If we are going to lead people to God, there should be some planning on how this is going to be done. Whether it's a major event or a small event, planning can go a long way in achieving success. Now, if your plan is to glorify your name, if your plan is to make yourself look good, then you can achieve success through planning. Hopefully, that's not the goal. If your plan is to glorify Christ, if your goal is to honor Christ, then hopefully that's a success you'll find. But then what plans are you taking so that Christ's name is honored and lifted up and glorified in the end? Because those who don't plan, those who just show up and hope for the best, you don't always get what you want. My strong suggestion, as is my own practice here at Meriden Hills, is that when it comes to the glory of God, let's not just wing it. When it comes to putting Christ on the stage, when it comes to lifting Christ up, let's put some planning in it and provide the best possible opportunity for people to, without distraction, see Christ clearly. Plan. Well, Christ plans. He sends his disciples in. Of course, they find the young colt. The man does ask, what are you doing? Verse 34, they say the Lord has need of him. They bring the colt to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt. Who's they? This is the followers of Christ. So they're putting their garments on the colt as a saddle, as a blanket. Jesus sits on the colt, verse 37. When he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God. Who started the praising? Who started the fanfare? Who started the excitement? It wasn't the crowds. It was the disciples. The disciples led the crowd in worship. It was led by leaders who had a plan and a purpose to lift the name of Christ. This didn't just happen. The disciples saw an opportunity as people were gathering to welcome Christ into Jerusalem. They saw the opportunity and they took it. The disciples led the way. The disciples showed the crowd what to do. The disciples started laying palm branches. Then others followed along. The disciples started praising and singing. Then others followed along, where even the children began following along, we're told. The Pharisees, of course, are a little upset, right? The Pharisees, in verse 39, uh, of the, and some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto them, Master, rebuke thy what? Disciples. Rebuke thy disciples. Why? Because it was the disciples who'd started the process. And the Pharisees were thinking, if we can shut down the leaders, everyone else will follow. And you know what? They're probably right. That's a great statement. These guys may be fools, but they're not stupid. They're fools to reject Christ, but that doesn't mean they're idiots. They know. You shut down the leaders, you shut down the ministry. That is why it's so very important that those who have been placed in leadership aren't easily shut down. 
That's why it's so very important if you are a leader of a classroom, a leader of your home, a leader of a ministry, it is so very important that you don't get shut down easily because when you got shut down, yes, there is fallout. And it is likely, at least for a time, people will be lost. They won't know where to go. Nothing will get done, at least not to the level that it could, should, and was. So they go to Jesus and say, you tell your leaders to stop. Christ's answer, I tell you, that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. God doesn't need you to worship him to be honored. His honor, his glory, is not dependent on your singing. It's not dependent on your prayers. God is awesome whether you know it or not, like it or not, sing about it or not. God's awesomeness, God's magnificence, is not going to wane one bit by your silence. You can be a part of God's worship, or you can choose not to be a part of God's worship. God is still just as much God. And Christ is reminding these Pharisees yet again, you've got it wrong. I'm not great because they claim I am. They claim it because I am. And if they don't, Someone else will. And in this case, if they don't, something else will. The rocks will sing my praises. Now, is Christ being metaphorical here? I don't think so. In my opinion, I think this is a literal statement Christ is making. Christ is saying, look, the fanfare is going to happen whether you liked it or not. And even if you did shut down my leaders, I would have the rocks cry out. As we sing the praises of God, let us remember what it is we're doing. Let's remember how important it is that if we don't, God will choose someone else to take our place. That doesn't mean God is less. It means we miss an opportunity to worship God. And also, again, look back earlier. When we worship God, others are prone to follow. I have learned a lot about worship over the years that I've been here at Meriden Hills. In my younger years, I was under the impression that when you sing, you are worshiping. That's mostly due to my experiences as a young boy in church and then in college, it not being really explained to me and just seeing people sing, I assumed that was worship. When I began to get a deeper understanding of God's word, that was some time in my ministry. In fact, it wasn't probably till I came here uh, so about within the last 10 years. So the first good 10, 12 years of my ministry, I, I really didn't truly understand worship and assumed that singing was worship. And as long as you're singing good songs and as long as the songs are about God, you were worshiping. That was my assumption. That was my belief system. And then as I got deeper in God's word, I came to the realization it has to be more than that. It can't just be singing a song that worships God. And as I began to evaluate what was worship, and as I began to evaluate what was going on around me in this church and other churches, I was greatly concerned. Greatly concerned that it seemed most other people believed still what I had believed before. As my eyes were opened, I was saddened with the fact, looking around, that many others had their eyes still closed. That they weren't seeing what I was seeing. They weren't searching for what I was searching. I can't say that I blame them because, again, it wasn't until recent that I began to search and to see. And I remember when I became pastor in 2016, one of my first 
strongest desires was this. I wanted the people of this church to be in a spiritual place of joy and healing from whatever chaos is going on in their lives. I wanted them to be strong in their walk with Christ. But outside of that, my second strong desire was that this church worshiped Christ, truly worshiped Christ. I don't know that I would say people here didn't want to worship Christ. I think, again, it was down to they didn't know what that meant. They didn't know how to do it, just as I did not know what it meant or how to do it years before. And it was no small endeavor over the years to get to the place where I believe now Meriden Hills does worship. It took many years. Again, 2016, that was seven and a half years ago. That was a long time ago. 2016, the church, I think, thought they were worshiping, but in my opinion, were not. And it took multiple years for Meriden Hills to finally recognize what that looked like. And now I hope there's no going back. I hope for Meriden Hills that people that come here and see what worship actually is would never go back to what we thought it was. And it is not the change of music. And there hasn't been really a whole lot of change of music. We definitely sing different songs, newer songs. But as far as the style of the music and the, the way in which we sing, that hasn't changed a lot. We sing louder. There's more people singing on stage and in the congregation without a doubt. But as far as the style goes, I don't know that it's a major shift in style. What has changed is the heart behind the singing purpose behind the singing that is without a doubt that is different and i believe that people are now seeing worship is not just a matter of singing worship is a spiritual condition and the singing is the overflow the outflow of what is taking place in your heart and when you do that and when other people see it they now say oh that's what it looks like i now have something to compare it to I didn't know because growing up, I just thought it was just the same. And here, the disciples lead the way. And they show everyone else, this is how it looks. Let's lift up the name of Christ. Unfortunately, the disciples were a little confused on what exactly they were worshiping Christ for. They knew they were worshiping the Messiah. They knew Christ is God. They stated that. But they thought that the purpose of God, in this case was to march into Jerusalem and reign as king, like right there, immediately. And I imagine their zeal in worship was partly due to their excitement about what was coming next. Not going to deny that that's a real temptation. To sometimes let your worship be driven by what you hope is about to happen next. That you worship God louder because you expect something great next week. That you worship God more sincerely because you expect blessings next month. That you worship God in a way you never had because a major life-changing event is on the horizon, you hope. And so your worship isn't necessarily false. You are worshiping God. And you do believe he's a loving God. Unfortunately, some of it is driven by what you think he's going to do. What's the danger of that? I believe the danger is when he doesn't do what you think. Your worship is affected. Because if you let your worship be affected by what you hope you will do when he doesn't, then, of course, there is a consequence for that. I challenge you to, in the future, when you worship, do not let your thoughts and emotions go to what you think or hope 
God will do in your life in the near future. Let your worship reflect who God is now and what God has already done and the promises he's given you. I'm talking far promises like heaven, eternity, future judgment on this, on this world of sin and the fact that God is not going to let sin last forever. The things he's promised, yes, look to those. But the things you hope will happen soon, don't let that affect your worship. Because that's what leads to discouragement and often even a discouraging worship service in the future. It takes the wind out of yourselves. It deflates your balloon. <laughs> and you come back and say, wow, I mean, I worship so strong. And every, I mean, the job I thought I was going to get, I lost. The relationship I was so excited about, I lost. Oh, man, you're like, I just don't want to worship today. Ah, see, now there it is. Your worship was affected a lot more by what you wanted God to do than who God is now. The disciples go from an extremely zealous state of worship to extreme depression within a few days because Christ doesn't do what they thought he would. I think they learned that lesson. We see a different, I think, uh, leadership style from the apostles, no doubt. We see them speaking differently, handling themselves differently, worshiping differently after the resur res resurrection of Christ. So they learned their lesson. How about you? Have you learned that lesson? Or is that a lesson you're still learning? Letting your worship be affected by what you hope God will do in your life now. We're going to end there and take some time to have a conversation with those that are in this room about some of the things we've discussed. For those watching online, uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again next Wednesday. Have a good night.